Benvenuti a Welcome to Vox Europe. I'm Chris Gilson, editor of the LSE Europe blog. On this episode, we'll hear from renowned philosophers and historians about what it means to be European today. We first speak to LSE reader in European philosophy, Simon Glendinning, about EU experimenters and how their philosophical approach that rejects dogmatic ideals might inform EU multi-level institutional design. The idea itself of maximising the freedom of, of everybody is something we could move ever closer towards and it would belong to a not merely national we. Paul Stock, LSE lecturer, discusses how a diversity of voices and opinions outside the sphere of politics can expand the notion of Europeanness. All the Eurosceptic press is often talking about Europe as being a kind of an elite product. And I think what we need to do is move away from that a little bit and start to think about, well, what does Europe mean to you, know, you and I? And for our segment on the future of Europe, political philosopher and member of the cabinet of Herman van Rompuy, Luc van Middelaar, talks about his award-winning book, A Passage to Europe, and how Europe will continue to be shaped by external shocks and not just directives from Brussels. If you look at the past 60 years of European history, then you see how the major changes have come about, not because of some people in Brussels with a plot, but most of the time because there were external shocks. All that coming up. This is Vox Europe, a podcast series from the European Politics and Policy blog at the London School of Economics. The LSE Europe blog brings you the latest debates around issues in the European Union states and Brussels. Europe's central mission is to increase the public understanding of social science in the contexts of European governance and policymaking. Our focus is broad-based and multidisciplinary, covering anything from economics to culture and society at the EU and national levels. Visit us at europe.eu. That's E-U-R-O-P-P dot E-U. For many, especially those in the UK, Europe appears to be on an inevitable path towards greater integration and federalism, Simon Glendinning, LSE reader in European philosophy and director of the Forum for European Philosophy, speaks about being European amidst economic turmoil and evolving public opinion. In a recent article for our Europe blog, Simon looked at the philosophical underpinnings of the contemporary debate over European integration, identifying three views. Dogmatists, who take the view that we are on a march towards an idealised federal union in Europe, and sceptics, who see no point to pursuing further union due to the differences between people and nations. But Simon recognizes there is a middle position, which he terms the experimenters, who wish to work towards unity and diversity. He tells us more. The experimenters are on the side of the skeptics in thinking that there is no contemporary opportunity or possibility of building a an international political community on the model that the the dogmatists want. However, they don't give up on the idea that there might be a not merely national we that could, as it were, be fully behind an international um, institution. And the sort of thing I'm thinking about there are in, in ordinary politics would be about the sense of a union where the ambition of this great political body would be to enhance the uh, freedom of existing political communities to develop in whatever direction 
there was subjective force behind. And, and one couldn't say in advance what that would look like, it, and, and I sometimes call this middle position that of experimenters, because all you can do is to have trials and opportunities and uh, have a go at this, have a go at that, setting up institutions to see if, the, if, if in these ways the nation-states can fall into lines of agreement. You can't anticipate that these would be binding agreements that would last forever. No, they'd, ha- they'd perhaps run their course, and, and then you ch- change them and transform them. So I think something much more open to transformation, and it would also be one which would always have its eye on the ambition to retain institutions with popular impetus. Currently, these tend to reside on the national level, but already today you can see uh, movements beyond that. And the idea itself of maximise the freedom of, of everybody is something we could move ever closer towards and it would be belong to a not merely national we. What does it mean to be European today? It's interesting that you uh, begin by asking what does it mean to be European today because there's a question in there whether perhaps it's different from what it was yesterday and also perhaps a question about how we ought to take a stand on it today. As it were, not just what does it mean but what should we strive for in thinking about what it means to be a European. When I started thinking about these questions in about 2007, I was very fortunate to stumble on some writings by a Lithuanian-born French philosopher uh, called Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas says, Europe is the Bible and the Greeks. Now that conception, first of all, what delighted me in that is that this is quite clearly a philosophical approach, as it were, to to Europe. It's not a geopolitical one. It's certainly not a geographical one. It's not, um, you know, the standard thing is the Europeans are those who live somewhere between the Atlantic and the Urals or whatever. It's, you know, this is a a cultural configuration or a configuration of spirit is how it would have been put in the 19th century. And Greco-biblical tradition of more than one tradition uh, growing into a space which is not a homogenous one but as it were divided in itself between those traditions which pull it in different directions at different times. It did seem to me a very good clue as it were for reading the heritage of Europe so that if you find a text or an object or an artifact or a building which in itself seems to embody somehow Greco-Christian or Greco-Biblical sources. Here you're looking, really are looking at something distinctively European. But this comes back to your question about today, how to think about it today. Because first of all, one might say to the Levinasian formula, Europe is the Bible and the Greeks, that looks very exclusive, very narrow, certainly begins to make the European Union look like this sort of rationalist Christian club, which a lot of people worry about, and I think rightly so. And indeed, one might think it would be more prudent to say Greek, Christian, and beyond, where that beyond would first of all take in Judaism, as I think actually uh, Levinas is already doing by talking about a Greek and biblical space. But if, if we can say now, instead of Greco-biblical, if we'll say Greek, Christian, and beyond, that beyond will allow us to properly acknowledge sources which are precisely beyond the Greco-Christian, for example, Judaism, for example, Islam, whose role in Europe is absolutely non-negligible and certainly not always in the position of of the uh, 
the enemy other, but also, and I think more interestingly, and here I'd sort of come back in a way to defend Levinas, is that the beyond can also refer to that possibility of a tradition to break from itself out of itself into something new. And this is something we've seen in Europe over and over again. I mean, there are absolute sort of paradigms of this. For example, the Enlightenment would be a moment where European subjectivity produces out of itself something quite new, but still European. That's the, the kind of uh, the paradox here. So the Greek, Christian and beyond, where the beyond isn't now non-Greek, non-Christian something else, but as it were, some other configuration of itself out of itself. I'm sort of fairly comfortable now to, to say to somebody, you know, who are the Europeans? The Europeans, whether they like it or not, or know it or not, and uh, certainly in my own country, in Britain, uh, a lot of people would neither like it nor know it, that they are the inheritors of the culture that is Greek, Christian and beyond. That was Simon Glendinning. The European economic crisis that began in 2008 has, for many, raised existential questions about the EU and the relationships between European countries. Paul Stock is a lecturer in early modern international history at the LSE and has looked at what it means to be European over the centuries. Paul talks about whether the transnational and cross-cultural ideas behind the Republic of Letters, an epistle group of philosophers and intellectuals spanning across much of Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, can inform a 21st century Europe post-crisis. But first, I asked him whether or not the common understanding of the notion of Europe has changed. One of the things that I think uh, strikes me when I think about the current contemporary debates about Europe is actually how similar they are to the kind of debates that have been going on really for the past several hundred years, actually. And so in that sense, the most obvious and most striking thing about investigating ideas of Europe um, in the modern period is how those debates are really quite contiguous over that long period of time. So, for instance, we see debates in the early 19th century about economic policy and the kinds of um, systems that should be set up to generate European trade, or, or not, or rivalry. Or We see debates about um, nationalism, for instance. We see debates about um, the large-scale movements of peoples across Europe. And so, in that sense, the, the debates that are still with us are not really the product even of very recent European history and the advent of the EU. They are things which have been central, really, to the consideration of European identity for, for several hundred years. And it's those dynamics that I'm trying to investigate. What I'm particularly interested in doing is thinking a little bit about the opinions of, I suppose, ordinary people and what they think about Europe. So whereas a lot of intellectual historians would focus on great thinkers, the great writers of a given period, I'm much more interested in thinking about what ordinary literate people would have to say about Europe to get a sense of if you were a reasonably educated person in, say, the late 18th century, the early 19th century, and you wanted to know more about Europe, where would you turn to find your information? And so in that sense, what I'm trying to do is expand intellectual history a little bit beyond the borders of great thinkers and great texts. Do you think there's a 21st century equivalent to the Republic of Letters, or it's a concept that, that we can use now to inform how we think? I mean, I think there are people who would like there to be um, in that sense, and I suppose that intellectual elites, academics, politicians would like to think of themselves as being a part of a transnational community of, of people all talking the same language, ideologically if not literally. 
But the, the, the Republic of Letters is a strange concept in a sense because we're very familiar. Uh, it's a, become a familiar concept to us from thinking about the 18th century in particular, um, philosophers who sort of disregarded their own national traditions in order to sort of unite together with um, a sort of set of shared concerns and assumptions. And in a sense there's a problem with that because um, by definition it's an elite culture. You're talking about a relatively narrow group of people. And I think that sometimes in contemporary debates about Europe, um, those kinds of um, implications um, can still be very problematic. So, for example, the Eurosceptic Press is often talking about Europe as being a kind of an elite product. And I think what we need to do is move away from that a little bit and start to think about, well, what does Europe mean to you, know, you and I or other people who are not sort of um, at the very top of political systems or considering themselves to be sort of transnational philosophers? So in that respect, the Republic of Letters offers something to us. I mean, it gives us a framework that we can use to think about ideas of transnationalism, ideas of cosmopolitanism, you know, cross-cultural communications. But it, in a sense, the, the questions that we need to ask shouldn't stop there. And we should instead be thinking a little more about um, what Europe means to the people of Germany, for example, or the people of um, Britain in particular. So Europe is currently racked by debates about immigration, particularly of places like uh, North Africa and the Middle East and that sort of thing in terms of people coming in from those areas. And that sort of resistance to the other is something that has been historically with us for hundreds of years. Why do you think there is a resistance to the other in, in Europe? Well, that's a huge question, um, not least because um, there are whole theories of identity that are premised on the idea that you need to identify other peoples in order to be confident about who yourself are, or sort of defining your own civilization, if you like, by pointing at other people and saying, well, we are who we are because we're not them. So in a sense, that's a very big question about um, the course of you know, Western civilization, if you like, perhaps even broader than that. Um, why does that remain compelling? Well, I suppose it remains compelling because it's an easy way of identifying a common sense of unity. If you can point to a group of people who you're pretty confident are unlike you, you can then generate a sense of who you are based on that. That's how nationalism works fundamentally, by pointing at other nations and saying, well, you know, we're not them and therefore this is who we are. And in a sense, the idea of Europe has been bound up with similar kinds of practices so that early modern Europeans, for example, would define themselves as being particularly sophisticated in comparison to other kinds of indigenous peoples that they would encounter in the rest of the world. And so in that sense, the, if you like, the kind of suspicion and the, the fear and the, sort of, the idea of there being an alien other is something that's become very fundamental to thinking about one's Europeanness. I suppose the question for us, you know, in contemporary terms, is how we can go beyond that. Because, I mean, you're right, I mean, immigration has become a kind of, it's, it's certainly a big policy issue, but it's also become a kind of cultural linchpin around which people can say, well, this person is European and therefore they're like me, or these people are not European and therefore they're not like me. And so in that sense, the debate remains very similar. But I suppose the challenge for us is to move beyond it and start to conceive of ways of thinking about one's identity without necessarily pointing to other people and being derogatory about them. What do you think it means to be European? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that directly because that's such a, a difficult thing to um, make concrete and not least because my research is concerned with investigating precisely that question over a, a long period of time. 
I suppose the other problem is that Europe is not a, it's not a fixed idea. I mean, it's not a set of qualities that one can identify objectively and say, well, this is something that represents Europe. It's a set of discourses, if you like. It's a set of assumptions that people make about themselves. And so to ask what it means to be European, what you're really asking there is, well, what does it mean to be European to this particular person and this particular time? And that's something I think we can establish. But neither should we um, trick ourselves into thinking that those things are absolute. So, for example, for an 18th century British person, the idea of Europe was very much conceptualised around a concept of classical civilizations, for instance, um, an idea of emerging racial theory which identified uh, a sort of a European race and non-European races. And those things were very real for those people who conceived of themselves as being Europeans in that period. But we shouldn't necessarily assume that um, those things are what definitively constitutes um, a European, because that would be essentially reifying, um, making real um, some concepts which are constructed. Um, so that dodges the question completely. <laughs> but I suppose the closest we can get to, to answer, asking what, what it means to be a European is to think in terms of um, what it means within the kind of matrix of a particular culture and the kinds of different components that together constitute an idea of Europe. <laughs> That was Paul Stock. The Future of Europe series on our podcasts takes a closer look at what's going on in Europe and what the future might hold. For this episode of Vox Europe, we spoke to Dutch historian and political philosopher Luke van Middelaar, who is also a member of the cabinet of Herman van Rompuy, the current president of the European Council. In his new book, The Passage to Europe, he explores the history of the European Union and the key players and issues that have shaped the organization into its present form. We first asked Luke van Middelaar about the impact of the euro on the notion of Europeanness. Europe is now in people's wallets, basically. And it had been there already for 10 years until the crisis struck. But the crisis has made this into a real experience, not a theoretical experience of saying, OK, we share the same money with people in, in Greece and Italy, but now people all across the Eurozone notice that it really matters to them personally, to their jobs, to their savings, to their pensions maybe, what happens with uh, the saving accounts on Cyprus, to quote a relatively recent example, or with public debt in Italy. And that has been quite a painful realization, of course. It's not just good news, huh? Europe. But on the other hand, people, I think, are getting to terms with this reality of this shared uh, membership enormous efforts have been done on all sides of the union both to bring solidarity with people and countries who needed it like like Greece and also to show responsibility and to do all the reforms that were needed and of course there is and there has been critique controversy cartoons between the Greeks and the Germans, and that's all true. But these are minorities, vocal minorities, in the end, the political support to do what was needed to safeguard the uh, euro uh, has been mobilized. So the jury is is still out on how this will uh, play out in the relationship with the public. But I think Europe is now there uh, to stay, and people will not forget this experience. What I try to show also in my book, uh, The Passage to Europe, is that Europe's history is full of surprises. And that was true in the past, and it will be true also in the present. And 
But I think if you look at the past 60 years of European history, then you see how the major changes have come about, not because of some people in Brussels with a plot uh, to run the continent or whatever, but most of the time because there were external shocks, events, the start of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989, and now, since five years, the global economic crisis, which have forced leaders to, and I mean national leaders, leaders of the countries sitting together in the European Council or the summits, as they're called, to take decisions and to uh, advance together. What I try to do in the book is basically to break with the opposition which you find in, in most of the textbooks and, and even newspaper articles about Europe. It's either Brussels or member states. And I try to show, to look at the, at the grey zone in between and how that is really decisive in where European politics is played out in the relationships between the European states. There's many, many quotes from politicians and memoirs, etc. in the book, but there's only one which is there twice, which is a famous one by Harold Macmillan, who was asked after a long dinner by a famous, uh, by, by a young journalist, what he feared most for his government. Macmillan's reply was, events, dear boy, events. And that will also be true in the future. The future is open. And the crisis, in that respect, is a moment of truth, obviously. But we cannot know what will happen next, but we must be aware of, of the unpredictability of events. And what the European Union has done in the past 60 years is to be more than just a system of rules, but to organize a capacity to deal with events also as a, as a club of states. And I think the countries will continue to show that in the years ahead. That's all for this episode on European philosophy. Join us soon for our next Vox Europe podcast special on the German elections. Vox Europe is a podcast series from the Public Policy Group of the London School of Economics. Another member of our blog family, the LSE Impact of Social Sciences blog, have launched their first podcast in their Audible Impact series, featuring Google's so-called favorite psychologist, Adam Grant, about how his study in the dregs of a university fundraising call center revealed that givers, the nice guys of the corporate and academic world, don't necessarily finish last. Givers are often perceived as being pushovers, and in a way, they did live up to the stereotype. Givers underperformed compared to the matches and takers, but... But once we brought in the scholarship recipient and they were able to see, here's how my work helps others, they actually caught up and ended up outperforming the takers and the matchers by quite a bit. Links for downloading and subscribing to Audible Impact can be found on the Impact blog at lseimpact.com. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley. For a full list of the music and sound used in this episode, visit our blog at europe.eu. I'm Chris Gilson, and thanks for listening.